So our guest today is Gurmeher Kaur. Um, Gurmeher Kaur is the author of Small Acts of Freedom, a deeply personal family history published by Penguin Random House. Um, she is a social activist, co-founder of Citizens for Public Leadership, a nonpartisan movement focused on advocating for progressive public policy in India, and an ambassador of Postcards for Peace, a nonprofit charitable organization. She studies English at Lady Sri Ram College for Women. Her second book, The Young and the Restless, Youth and Politics in India, will be published in 2019. Uh, so how we're going to do this is she's going to read from her first book, and then we will discuss her second book, which as some of you probably know is based on interviews with young people in politics in India. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to open it up to questions. So, Super. so do I just read it here? Yes. Can everyone hear us? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so, so like, like I, I, I think I should give you a little background about how the book is. It's, it's parallel narratives, and it goes on from uh, first-person account of a three-year-old child uh, to third-person account of the of the family history. And I'm reading from the first chapter. It's Gurmeher, age three, uh, Jalandhar, seventh August, nineteen ninety-nine. I don't understand the chaos. The house is full of people, some who I know and some who I don't. I recognize my family. These are faces I've seen before. There's Jackie Chachu there, there's Pavan here. On any other day, it would have been, a, it, on any other day, it would have been routine, nothing out of the ordinary. As they are always home for a game of carom, sprawl around on the living room floor, slip, sipping on their chai, laughing loudly at jokes I don't understand. But today, they are not happy. No one is laughing. The elders in the house told me that Papa would come home today, yet I can see everybody in the house but him. I look for him. My eyes, my eyes go over everyone's sad faces one by one, hoping to find him in a room full of people, wondering if I have missed him, wondering if he's here looking for me too and cannot find my tiny body lost in the crowd. I'm about to ask people. I'm about to call out to him, but by then, with a sea of moaning people and men in uniform, he comes back. He comes back. He comes back sleeping in a wooden box with a badge with a bandage on his chest on the same spot where my where I used to lean my tiny head against and sleep, listening to the rhythm of his heartbeat. My father is finally home. I don't understand how he can sleep amidst all the noise and crying. People are taking his name over and over again, but he does not wake up. I hold the edge of the wooden box to look closer, propped on my knees, trying to keep a balance as the crowd gathers around me to take another look. These people bother me. They're not letting, they're not letting my father sleep. I turn around in anger and ask them to be quiet. But I see a lady behind me crying loudly, beating her chest, and I start, and I start crying out of fear. There's uns there's uncertainty and unfamiliarity in the air. Everyone seems to know something that I don't. I call out to Papa softly, hoping that he'll listen to me. I know that he'll wake up. The I know that he'll wake up at the sound of my voice. I'm a special little girl. He doesn't wake up. I want to go away. I want to be somewhere safe and happy. I want to go back home to a place where whenever Papa came, we were happy. Mama isn't here with me. She's in another corner across from me, staring at Papa, unable to hold back her tears as her chest heaves with uncontrollable sobs. I walk towards her on my knees. I want her to hold me and comfort me. I want her to take me away from here. Mummy, the words barely fall out of my mouth. She looks, at, she looks up from Papa's face to see me sitting on my heels, waiting for her to acknowledge my presence. This has never happened before. She's always known which corner of the room I'm in, but not today. Today, she notices nobody around her. She understands nothing around her. Her eyes meet mine. 
She takes me in her arms and hugs me tightly and cries in the little nook of my neck, painfully forming sentences between the sobs. Papa is gone now. He won't come back home. What does she mean? I I don't understand. Her words make no sense to me. Your father's your father passed away. He died. She says the others say the same thing. But what does that mean? What is died? What is death? I let my questions be. They only make people cry more. Papa is still there in a box. Mama, what is this? I ask, pointing to the wooden box, curious to know, curious to know what it is. It's a dream, she says. Dream, I repeat. The box is called a dream. Close your eyes, it'll all go away. It's only a dream. She holds me tighter. I close my eyes for a few seconds and then open them again. The box is still there. It has not gone. The men come in uniforms. So does Papa's brother, my chachu. Dada ji, his father, comes along with him too. Chachu's eyes are filled with tears, and for the first time, I learn that boys cry too. They lift the dream, covered in the tricolor and dressed with marigolds, whose faint smells, whose faint smell stays behind on your wrists, fingers, and palms, and then take it away. Will he not come back ever? I ask Bhaiya. Bhaiya works in our house. He helps with repairs and also takes me to shop to get Kit Kats. Everybody is with mummy and papa, but I've been asked to stay here. I hear gunshots outside. The twenty-one gun salute. You should be very proud of your father. He fought with the bad Pakistani people and died to save the country. Bhaiya says. I understand, but when will he wake up? I ask. As I see Chachu walking towards me, I remove my hands from Bhaiya's neck and run towards him. He takes me in his arms. He runs his hand through his hair and tells me in soft voice, "Papa is here. I'm taking him. I'm taking you to him." And Papa is there. He's not in a dream anymore. He's laying on hay. His eyes are still closed. Mummy is standing next to him. Chachu puts me on the ground, and I and as I walk towards my mummy, everybody clears the way for me. All eyes looking at me. Mummy pick. Mummy picks me up, and I can see Papa better. Look at him and remember him. She whispers in my ear, her voice quivering. I lean forward and take a look at him. He's there in front of me. His face calm despite all the chaos around him. I stare at his face for the last time. I have to remember this image. I take in his hair, which I used to tug at whenever he gave me a piggyback ride. His closed eyes, which he taught me how to kiss before saying goodnight. His nose, which he told me looked similar to mine, and his lips, which were curled into a Mona Lisa smile. I remember it. All I remember after that are flames. I look for him again. He was right there a few seconds ago, and now he's gone. So yeah, this uh, is the first chapter of the book, the last memory of my father that I have. So this is very personal. It's a very personal book. And yes. your second book is not. <laughs> the second book is not personal no. at all. No. So how do you feel about right? I mean, I suppose there are two questions here. The first mm-hmm. is. Um, um why you chose your first book to be the very personal yeah. one which i imagine yeah it surprised a lot of people yeah and also how does it feel to go from some writing something so personal mm-hmm. to something that is very public and political i think um i knew that i always wanted to write this book i i went into lsr knowing that i wanted to be a writer i knew that i want and the book was initially in my heart it was always supposed to be fiction i never thought somebody would want to know my story uh, the way it was uh, the way it is it's been told just straight out so i always assumed that i can make 
I can turn the story that I have that I've lived into something, some sort of a fiction, and eventually publish it when I'm 30, 35, or whenever I had the chance. But then, but then life happened, and I had an opportunity of writing a book of telling a story, and that's the thing about power of words, right? There's so much you can say just through writing and just reaching out to people and so much change that it has. And I knew that this was a story that I wanted to tell. I knew I wanted to tell a story of family. I knew I, I, knew I wanted to tell a story of, uh, of a person's family history. But then the second book happened. And, um, and, this, was, and this was way after, way after Small Acts of Freedom was published and I'd gone through the, I'd gone through the whole series of uh, going to events for it and talking about it. And, and, and the story had left me. Um, whatever my body was so consumed with this, uh, with this, with this narrative, with the story, and once it left me, I felt so. I kind of felt free and burden free, and I knew the next thing that I wanted to do was write a proper political book, um, and that's and that's exactly what the Young and the Restless is. Um, I I have I've heard it before that people expect the first book, the second book to be the first book, mostly because it uh, it covers the topic, it covers youth and politics and they expected me to write on youth and politics the first time um, the first time I announced the book given given the fact uh, given that I'm just protest and my involvement in in activism um, but I think I had something in my heart and the youth and the politics book I think it was just waiting it was right there and I had to and it was just on it it just it just the the first book was had to be followed up by this yeah and um, so is there is, do you think there is a connection between a political act and who you are personally? Mm -hmm. Okay, I think there's. I, I think there's. I think I truly, strongly have always believed that uh, your person is political. I've never. This for me, there is never. There's never a day when anything that I do in my personal life is not does not have a political uh, one consequence to it, or doesn't come from a political or place, or does not have a political impact. Um, even, and I think I can't. And I. And I personally could not have lived a life uh, that, that is apolitical. I mean, my whole existence uh, has been political. Every single time, I mean, even in this topic, I talk about, talk about being three years old and not understanding death. So for me to understand basic concepts of life and death and uh, understanding why I live in the kind of house that I live in had to have, very, had to have a very political... I, ha I had to confront the political before I could even confront the personal. I needed to know that it's Pakistan. I needed to know the conflict way before I could know uh, to, to understand death. So I understood. So for me, my first interaction with the conflict was through this, through the politics of it. I understood politics way before I understood anything else. Uh, for me, the personal has always been political. And I think even with this book, which is also, which is why I've kept it. Uh, initially, I wanted, um, initially with the second book, I wanted to just cover the themes. Um, but I, but then that would have been an extremely large project to do. So I brought in, so I decided that I'm going to cover these certain themes uh, that the youth is very concerned about. Could you just explain a little bit about the format of your second book for so, everyone? So the format of the second book, uh, we have, uh, I'm, I've interviewed nine leaders and each leader has a certain theme uh, that they, each leader has a th certain theme that I'm covering with them. Uh, so with Omar Abdullah, I'm covering youth and militancy in Kashmir. Uh, with Shala Rashid, I'm covering student politics and the rest, um, uh, and just various different uh, themes that are that the youth of the youth of the country is affected by through various um, through various politicians. And I think um, 
and for me it's been such a great journey because i realized how much of their politics is personal too for example with sachin pilot we're covering secularism and it's so and it's so exciting to see because he comes from such a he's taken such strong personal in his life he's married he's married to a kashmiri muslim woman and he comes from this uh family in rajasthan um which is a very hindu dominant state um and it's kind of exciting how their personal plays into political um and i will talk more about it later before yeah. i i'm also consciously trying to not give away a lot of the book while talking about it because it's not out yet uh but yeah so why mm-hmm. do you think it's so important to talk about young people and youth in mm-hmm. politics in india like young people in representation i think oh, i think mostly because mostly because uh 60% of the and we are a very large country and imagine being imagine a country that's that large and 60% of their population being under under 25 it's so important to talk, talk about young leaders for me it was uh you know we always talk about representation whether it's women whether it's uh, whether you're from a certain community whether you're from a certain caste or whether you're from a certain religion there we were constantly talking about representation and here the 60% of the nation is under the age of 25 and i wanted to know who's representing us and who's representing our interests so and that's the idea that took me um uh that took me that want that, that made me want to write this book also given the fact that i uh you know there was these huge labels that were plastered on me very early when i was 20 years old youth leader young activist and the word young surrounded me way too much and i remember i wanted to i wanted to reach out to somebody because i was so lost when it all happened it was it was a huge storm i wanted to reach out to somebody uh, who's been there in my place and when i did there was absolutely nobody i mean there's a the shela rashid who had just gone to the gnu rao and then there were some student student leaders who were still trying to make their way up but there's no but, but i but i couldn't find i couldn't find younger leaders whose life i could follow and be like okay maybe this is this is the next step for me um and i realized that there's a shortage about one work written on uh, younger people in politics uh then youth on politics youth in politics and it just so happened that i wanted to write this book mostly because who's representing us and who's writing about us the last book that i read on young uh, on young india especially now uh, was this book by snigda poonam called um, dreamers a very interesting book and except for that i i barely found anything okay um so one of the other things that this segues into mm-hmm. is your is the fact that you're a young woman yeah. and in today's social media age mm-hmm. i know you've gotten a lot of attention yeah on various social media platforms mm-hmm. what is it what is it like to be a woman in a very political <coughs> space in social media india i mean while i can talk about myself i think this is where i want to rope in i do want to talk about the second book a little bit a little bit here and how i how i had this uh, so even when i was thinking about what are these leaders that i'm going to uh, that i'm going to that i'm going to profile so i couldn't i as much as i would have liked to pick to take kanaya kumar umar and shela all three of them and uh, do a profile on them given the fact that i've known them so well and given the fact that they've had, they've played such important role uh, to bring up the whole conversation of youth in politics uh, i had to pick one of them umar was not somebody umar was not someone who was uh, and because the book i also had to zero down on people interested in or leaders interested in electoral politics or who are already a part of it So Omar was not someone who wanted to be in electoral politics so I it was anyway eliminated from my mind and then the choice was between Kanhaiya Kumar and Shaila Rashid and that was the time I realized when and this was and I was doing the book when everyone was talking about who's going to get into politics and who's not 
who is going to contest is there are they going to have are they going to be involved in 2019 how they're going to be involved in 2019 elections and this is something that i noticed for kanaya kumar so both so all three of them uh, have umar umar shela and kanaya all three of them emerged on the national political scene through the same uh, gnu agitation and all three of them have, have had very similar uh, political views all three of them have been labeled anti national and all three of them have the have a very similar um, similar uh, public image and yet it's and yet the political path for kanaya kumar has been much smoother than it has been for umar who was recently who was recently attacked with a gun um kanaya has swiftly having the same ideology swiftly moved into uh, kind of an electoral uh, electoral space of space where he is now thinking of contesting from a certain constituency in bihar with the backing of a few certain political parties and on the other hand umar who's a minority in the country has is being attacked and now talking about shaila who i do who i do cover in the book is um is is fighting her own battles one with one given the fact that she's a woman uh she's a kashmiri she's a kashmiri muslim woman who's a feminist who's a communist who's a who's an atheist uh and she comes from this heavily militarized area where there's no concept of electoral politics where nobody with the with the where the general public does not want to engage with electoral politics and she wants to and she's and she's hoping to hoping or finding her way to run from there or to represent her people and if and it just becomes and i think with her it's it was so it's so complex to discuss um and with her it's so complex her identities and ambitions it just don't match um and like i said and i think the world in general is so much tougher on women than it is with it is on men this is this is just how easy it has been compared to i'm not saying it it, it has been extremely easy for kanaya kumar as opposed to maybe some of the uh, some of these other leaders who are emerging who've had who come from a dynasty and have had money and power and influence ever since they were um ever since they've you know they've they've born with a silver spoon given but come bit but between the three of them an apakast uh, an apakast hindu male from a hindi heartland has it much easier than a kashmiri muslim woman to be a part of the electoral politics and that says so much about the kind of structure that we have so i think that is something that i genuinely truly um, and I, again i think i feel like i'm giving away too much of the book which is something i have to be very conscious about but i think that's something that i that's really uh, which i was not expecting to encounter uh, before i went to the into the interviews but as i wrote the book eventually this is something that really stood out um and say so much about our political structure in general about how it does it it really hasn't how there really isn't much space for women which is why it's so important to fight for the 33% reservation because otherwise where is the space it's all dominated by powerful you know men who come from dynasties who've had muscle power have had money power and have uh, this certain privilege and even finding even find i think the biggest regret that i have with this book uh, and i still have it is that it doesn't have enough women uh it does not have enough women uh it only has to with such a shame uh mostly because i couldn't find them and why could i not find them because the kind of because the kind the way the electoral politics is and the things that it requires from a human being it's not social service it's it's power of different various sorts and women are not in a position of power and it's just a great conversation that i've had in the book 
Um, so one of the things that comes up is you're talking about mm-hmm. the ideological similarities of the lot of, uh, of yeah. a lot of the yeah. people you've thought of including in your book, mm-hmm. but you've also talked about things like money and power and yeah. dynastic politics. Yeah. So that's that sets up an interesting conundrum between yeah. sort of um, well ideology mm-hmm. and also just pragmatism and practicality yeah. and getting things done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did is that something you explore heavily in your book? Is is that something you have strong opinions about? Uh, about while I was writing the book, I think um, if there's something that I understood about while I was writing the book, if there's something that I understood about ideology, uh, is that in India there's no ideology. There is absolutely no ideology. Uh, unlike unlike let's say UK or the US, where here you have the the uh, the who do you have the conservatives and the and, and well, the labor and now labor and the, has, there's a central party there's a central well. party uh, yeah as of today <laughs> okay which uh, hmm. <laughs> 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 I'm asking what do you have uh, but yeah or or as opposed to as opposed to the US where you have uh, the republicans and the democrats and they are and everyone's very set to their ideology in india you have a congress and you have a bjp and then you have a cpi and after a certain point they're all just talking the same thing uh So for me I've realized with especially with the younger leaders there's there's no ideology and there's a certain incident I do want to talk about uh which I do one of the most exciting interviews that I've had uh was was the inter- was my interview with um, with the Shiv Sena leader Aditya Thakre and now and I think just the mm. I was very scared I I did an interview with Shaila in Kashmir I did an interview with Jignesh and I'd, and by then I'd also done an interview with Sachin Pilot and those were spaces that i was very comfortable in knowing that i'm i'm physically safe in this space knowing that i knew i i knew the kind of answers i was going you know i was uh, i would get i there was no surprise there and i i went into this interview with aditya um, with the same with the same idea with the same mm-hmm. idea that i had in my heart that i know exactly what they're going to talk about um, i know what he's going to say and there was a certain point that, um, mm. and i opened the interview and i opened the interview and i asked him so who who do you look up to uh, mostly to build up it wasn't a, it wasn't something that i was expecting i, I was expecting maybe like a, he's going to say yeah shatrapati shivaji maharaj is somebody i look up to and and give me this whole history of hindutva you know as 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 they do um, about the sindh river and the great before pre mughal and pre british india and i was really expecting that and i was like there's so much transcribing i'll have to do but then there's aditya thakre in this grand shiv sena bhavan in the middle of dadar it's a great it's, it's now an iconic spot because a lot in bombay has gone down there back in the back in the 70s 80s and 90s from the shiv sena bhavan uh, so i'm sitting there i'm also very scared and i'm timid because there are all these it's also a very masculine space i remember walking up like um, take my lift taking me to the fourth floor and i walk into this room of just men and in my heart i was so intimidated because i was like if any one of them recognize me as the girl from that or, or from those protests they might just kill me i mean that didn't happen because i was i was uh, then um i was then taken to a certain room and i was to wait and i was very nervous being in that space but then here was this very um how do i say this very put together young boy who's only 6 years older than i am telling me that uh, he, the person that he really looks up to is tony blair and and i was and i was sure I, and i had this I, and i and i went into that interview thinking 
this is the, the, I I thought I'm I know exactly what he's gonna say and then I'm gonna come to this point and then he, but I'm just sitting there stunned I'm like why <laughs> how but wasn't isn't hasn't shifts and all has been very anti-communist anti-left and then he gives me and I don't I'm not gonna tell you what he tells me because <laughs> you'll have to buy the book for that uh, <laughs> uh, but it was a very interesting interview uh, and. And it just tells you so much about ideology. Uh, it just tells you so much about ideology and about how. And this is something that I've noticed. I feel like the older, the older generation of politicians right now are trying to uh, divide divide the country on the basis of a certain ideology, especially post, especially post the JNU row and um, JNU agitation. Um, also, also this is something that I've noticed. Maybe till till like to 2016, 2017. Uh, everyone was debating ideologies, but as we've grown closer to the elections, uh, I don't think I don't think the younger people care about ideologies. Uh, all of a sudden, we're actually asking questions: Where are the jobs? Because to be honest, as uh, I mean, all of us may have great uh, all of me all of us may truly believe in ideology, but what's putting food on our table? And I'm also really worried about it. Where am I going to masters? Is there has the government given enough funding? To a certain univer to universities for them to have more seats for them to have more access to uh, academic material or to have better professors. So what's happening there? So at this point, I'm at I'm at a, I'm uh, and I'm and I'm realizing it. I'm at a space where I I'm sitting for placements. I'm I'm applying to colleges and I'm realizing well I do care about ideology, but I also care about how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to pay my rent? And 60% of us, all of a sudden, under the age of 25, or at the same crossroads as I am, are um, are asking for those questions. And I remember there was I was at the Jaipur Lit Fest and we were speaking. And for a very long time, the conversation just went, "Well, what does nationalism mean to you? What does national nationalism mean to you?" And all of us stupid uh, panelists were like giving long, um, long answers about what nationalism means to us. And then somebody from the audience just stood up and said, hey, listen, we don't care about nationalism. We've heard so much about it. It's something that's been debated so many times. Will you please, can we just, if you're talking about youth, can we talk about jobs? Can we talk about education? And I found myself like nodding my head and saying, yes, I've spoken about nationalism so much. It's not benefiting me. It's not benefiting you. All it's been, like the only person who's being benefited from nationalism are the TRP people because it makes for such a spicy, <laughs> such a spicy debate session. Um, so yeah, so I think uh, talking about ideology, I genuinely feel that there's, uh, there's, uh, this is something. Whether it's my, whether it's, and now I call them my politicians because I spent so much time <laughs> researching on them, twenty four hours. Whether it's my set of politicians, uh, and whatever ideology that they come from, I never had one person, uh, uh, one person try and sell me a story. All they were trying to sell me are ideas and policies, and I think that's very, and that's something that's very different than the older generation. The only thing I'm, I, I would be worried about is, I hope they do not fall into the same. I, I love that, I love the way they're all progressive, given whether their their parties have been right wing or whether they're as left as, let's say, Shell or as right as Aditya. Uh, there's a very, they're very similar in the sense they're all very pragmatic the way they think. Uh, the only thing I'd be worried about, I just hope, I just really hope that. Um, they're never. I hope that they're not driven to a point where they have to, um, where they find themselves, uh, you know, shelling out the rhetoric just to get votes. Uh, and I think a lot of it depends on what we what we buy from them as an electorate. What what do we vote them in for? If we if we are voting them in for 
uh, a nationalism or a communal rhetoric that they're selling us, then then I think that that fault lies on us. But I'm very hopeful with the with the set the, with these set of politicians. So the other thing that comes up mm -hmm. when you're discussing questions of ideology and pragmatism yeah. is this idea of jobs and education, which is very mm -hmm. closely tied to the yeah. larger big ticket big, issue in India, yeah. which is development. Yeah. So um, when you're talking to young people, mm -hmm. and what is their these young politicians, is there a somewhat uniform version of development? Is it this GDP-driven mm -hmm. development? Is it a standard of living development? What uh, is it? Even I think yeah, yeah. I think I think it even I think uh, it comes. It also it, the idea of their development. It, it also comes from uh, the place that they are coming from, which is why I say the person is so political. Mm -hmm. So for Ashela Rashid, what is development? For Ashela Rashid, the development would be to live in a place where she's not worried that she's going to be shot. Where she's not worried that her people are going to be, uh, are going to be, you know, there's going to be a protest and pellet guns would be fired at her people. For her, that is development. And now for another Thakre who's also from uh, Mumbai, uh, development would be how how whenever and Mumbai has extremely high rainfall. For him, for him, development is that I've banned plastic. Uh, even though I got a huge backlash for it, and I put a uh, and I and he and he spent that and he spent six months perfecting this uh, perfecting uh, perfecting the policy for no plastic and the and had corporates uh, move to paper uh, paper straws and so for him development is so for him development is I, uh, is no plastic clogging the drains so that there's no water so that there are no Mumbai floods and for Rashela Rashi the development would be would be nobody's firing on her on her people um, so development for everyone is very different now for Jignesh Mewani who I'm covering cast with development is representation development is for him that nobody is uh, uh, that that all the all the Dalit atrocities that happened given the UNA well, the UNA rally that he led for him development would be that his people uh, have the same equal standing in a in a society and are not uh, and are not uh, yeah humiliated. I mean, the way the world is for him, development is that. So I think everybody has a very uh, different idea of development given the space that they are from. That's quite interesting yeah. because these are various conceptions of an achievement of human yeah. rights. I think yeah. that it's a yeah. sort of Aditya Thakre is very in a collective space of mind. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, uh, but it's also because it's also yeah, and, and I think with Aditya it's fair because he's also ha he also he also has a deal with. Mumbai floods, which yeah. takes, which halts halts the city, and Mumbai is such a such an important city to India, and so many lives are lost. An electric wire in the Mumbai floods, and you don't know how many people are elect, uh, electrocuted, and then they're and they're so if so everyone has a very different, uh, but the same. But like I said, what really ties them together is the is the fact that they want to work on these issues. Uh, that they're not sell they're selling me what they what they're telling me and selling to the world through their ideas and the conversation is um, are solutions they're not giving me a rhetoric they're not telling me that uh, they're not telling me a Hindu khatre mein hai and asking me to like them for that they're telling me that I'm gonna ban plastic because it um, it's clogging my train so that more people don't die and it's Ashala Rashid saying that I'm gonna speak up on the human right uh, violations that happen, and I'm going to speak up against what, uh, against, uh, and she's going to speak up, uh, against Aspa from her point of view, uh, and talk, and and I think if, yeah, like I said, development is very, which is also why the personal is political, and even with this book, the personal is political.
Thank you to Gurmeha for taking the time to be with us today.